Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yeah, you are listening to another episode of the Two Sharp Reds, myself, Ollie Gill, and of course, Australia's third favourite son, Mark Schwarzer. We are still in isolation, Mark, and regular listeners of the show know you to be a, a huge wine fan, but I'm just looking at your WhatsApp picture now as we make this call, and you're in your traditional lederhosen with a keg of beer. You know, is this sort of slightly incriminating evidence, or, or are you sort of in there, out in the open, knowing that you're both a beer and a wine fan? Well, I just think it's got to be taken into context, really. I think you can jump sure. to any conclusions. Uh, just because I've been pictured once in Lederhosen with a keg over my shoulder doesn't mean I am an avid beer lover. Um, but I must add, I do like my beer. <laughs> this is it's this is like the the alcohol podcast equivalent of you know a player being spotted in a different city. You know, going oh. Is he maybe having a tour of another facility? Yeah, you know, Mark. Yeah, I don't know. But, Question marks. I, well, you know, the funny the, the the funny thing about that picture is, it's me and Lederhosen and with a keg over my shoulder, like you said. But I'm in Spain, so work that one out. You are the man of the world, aren't you? You are an international man of mystery. <laughs> I'm I'm not going any further. I'm not going any further with that. I'm just going to leave no. it at that, and I'm just going to plant that seed, and off I go. I like it. Speaking of planting seeds, have you still been gardening over the last couple of days? Well, who, who wouldn't be? If you had an opportunity to go outside, in your own garden, of course, in isolation, um, and do some gardening, who wouldn't? The weather's been not- absolutely sensational over here, and I have spent probably the last 10 days... Uh, every day, at least three or four hours in the garden with my dogs uh, doing various gardening projects. Hey, Mark, uh, you've chosen the wine for this week. What have you gone for? Well, I thought it was about time that I, that I came up with the goods. Um, and this time, uh, I'm going to go out. I'm going with a wine. It's called the All Out 17. It's a Merlot, the WG Grace. Um, and just to give you a little bit of background on this one, it's in homage of the 1882 match between England and Australia at the Oval when England were all out in the second test for 77 rounds, which handed Australia their first test win and gave birth to the Ashes, as we know them today. So this, this event is seen by many as the watershed in the coming of age of Australia as a nation where almost anything seems to be possible. The spirit has been produced, this, this stunning Merlot, a variety long dominated by the old world, but now in its second the new world innings. So it's a really, really good bottle of wine. Really, really nice. Um, got some really good reviews. So I'm really looking forward to having a taste of this one. Yes, and regular listeners, of course, will know here on the Two Sharp Reds. But if you are just tuning in for the first time, we will taste this beautiful bottle of red throughout the episode. And towards the end, we'll compare it to a player past or present. But let's get stuck into the football, Mark. And it's interesting, isn't it? In a time where we don't have 
genuine storylines to talk about when it comes to goals, hat-tricks, saves, you know, shock results. Uh, there still seems to be a lot of headlines out there in the world of sport and I suppose some disappointing ones too because we spoke last week about Jack Grealish at Aston Villa and, and sort of, you know, preaching to, to be able to stay at home and then he was caught uh, coming out of a party and crashing his car and it was all all pretty horrible and, and Kyle Walker... He's uh, he's not helped himself either on the weekend. It's, uh, it's human nature. A lot of people just can't contain themselves, uh, like to break rules. Um, you would think Kyle Walker at 29 years old would know better. Um, and, and you know what? He's come out. And of course, afterwards, when you are caught out, it's easy to come out and then apologise and, and say how wrong you were and how bad you were. And you know, you've got to follow the guidelines when you yourself are not. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it is hypocritical, unfortunately. And, you know, listen, I know, I know Kyle Walker reasonably well, and he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good young man, you know, or I call him young man, but he's not really at that stage anymore in terms of football. Um, and I'll just repeat, should know better. He's going to be fined um, quite heavily by his club and right, rightfully so. Um, but it just doesn't, doesn't set a good light on footballers, unfortunately, again. So I knew that when we were going to cover this topic off, there'd be some difficult territory for you and me to work our way through. But if you, if you haven't heard of the story or you, you're a little bit uh, another wiser on it all. So it, we see that uh, Kyle Walker had invited some escorts to his house and there was also uh, a friend of his which was there. There were a few pictures that were released as well. And I think the difficult thing about this, Mark, that you get the sense that whether or not it was in an isolation period, this would still reflect incredibly poorly upon him and Manchester City and England. And so he's really not helped himself in that manner that it's almost, you know, you can totally take it totally separately, you know, and take it away from isolation and go, well, this is still incredibly inappropriate. It's just very disappointing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like... Listen, how many people in the, in a normal day life get up to those antics? I mean, it happens all the time, right? And nobody really blinks an eye and nobody has any concerns about it. And that's it. But I've said it before in the past. You know, anybody in the limelight have different rules. And, and right, rightfully so in a lot of ways. And people in the sporting world particularly and footballers, you know, they're, they're massive role models. And it, it is, a, 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 you know, a terribly bad example uh, of a role model, and yes, it reflects poorly on, on on Manchester City, but it's it's not their fault, you know. And and they're going to, you know, they're going to um, obviously punish Kyle Walker, and rightfully so. There is a, there is a, I suppose, uh, you know, a, a darker light shone on England as well because of it. However, again, it's not England's fault, as in the federation. I'm sure he'll be spoken to. I'm sure he'll be reprimanded, whether or not. Gareth Southgate selects him again based on that. Only time will tell. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very, very silly position to be in at these times. And we said it last week about Jack Grealish, you know, madness, just absolutely crazy. And the same, you know, the same with Kyle Walker now, you know. And, uh, you know, throughout life, you, you get in a position where you, uh, you, you know, you've got periods of your life where decisions that you make can have huge influences on your future, and maybe, maybe with Jack Grealish last week, with Kyle Walker this week, maybe those decisions will have ongoing ramifications for their future careers and, and, and ongoing in their life. If you were an England fan, you'd be feeling, I reckon you'd be feeling incredibly frustrated given the fact that you, you, when you look at 
what that squad in particular was able to to achieve at the World Cup. And I got the sense being here in England that, you know, people were being proud of their football club again, you know, or of their national team again. That that became really evident. And obviously in a a year that now we we don't get to see the Euros, which is really frustrating for, for England as well. I worry that some of the good work that they've done off the field is starting to be replaced. I don't know if that's just, if that's harsh, you know, commenting on just a couple of issues, but it does feel like all this good work that they've been doing, you know, people like a Jack Grealish working really hard to change his image is now undoing all that good work. Yeah, and listen, I mean, Jack Grealish, I think we touched on it last week, you know, throughout his career, uh, his short career so far, let's be honest, in football, he has had moments whereby he's got himself into trouble. You know, he's misbehaved. He's, he's um, you know, he's attracted the wrong sort of attention to himself. And there comes a point where, yes, there'll always be somebody who are willing to take a chance again. However, <laughs> there are those who will go, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. It's not part of the image that we want to set. England, you know, for example, if you talk about England representing your country, there, there is an image that they want to portray. You know, and like you said, Gareth Southgate has worked very, de- you know, very hard to try and change the general perception of footballers in this country, particularly the England national team, and what it, what it means for these guys to play for their country. Then you take it another step further and you look at sponsors um, and fans. You know, some people, and there'll be, there'll be some sponsors out there, who won't want this sort of behaviour associated with the national team. And that may come to a point, that may be a point where it will dictate whether or not certain players are involved anymore in the national team. So players have to really be careful on, 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 on decisions or on, 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 on things that they decide to do that maybe hinder their career further down the line, whether it's immediately or, or at a later date. Um, you know, Kyle Walker... <laughs> It's just madness, really, at this time. But unfortunately, what it does is, when there's one or two or three individuals that behave in an irresponsible way, generally all footballers get get basically that bad name. They get they get tainted with you know they get painted with the same brush. You know they 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 in the end they are we all you know, everyone's get put in the same basket, and all of a sudden, all footballers are out breaking curfews, crushing cars breaking curfews and having having escorts over their house, you know, and then that's generally what happens. I just hope that in this case, again, that people understand that, you know, 95% of footballers are just like the average individual in general, that, you know, they are working hard, they're doing the right thing, they're trying to be good professionals, they're trying to make the most out of a short career. So let's shift gear a little bit now. In these sort of strange times we find ourselves in, we're starting to to see the financial effects on, you know, whether it's something to do with sport or outside of sport. It's pretty clear that the economy is going to start to to really struggle. And and, uh, Liverpool have made the, the difficult decision, you'd assume, to place employees on the government's job retention uh, scheme and that was announced on Saturday. Uh, so they've become now the fifth Premier League side to have placed staff on. Is it furlough, furlough? I, I can't, I can never remember that, Mark. You're a lot smarter than me. Is it furlough? I think it's the furlough, mate. I think. Well, how about if you say furlough and I say furlough, then we've definitely covered it off. As long as we don't say Israel, furlough, then we're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, furlough. Yeah, then, <laughs> then we're really struggling. But they have become the fifth Premier League side uh, to do so. And 
in a year, Mark, that they've made over forty million pounds in profit. So that's not just breaking even or or coming near that. That that's just clear green profit from Liverpool in in what's been an incredible stretch for them as a club, and I'm assuming as a city, it's such a positive time to be around Liverpool. It feels like a real surprise that they've made this decision. It, it does. It is a real surprise. I mean, listen, it's such a surprise that you have people like Jamie Carragher coming out and 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 voicing his his uh, you know he's he, real he's real disappointment of the club doing what they've done. I, I don't get it either. You know, it's Liverpool. It's, it's one of the biggest clubs on the planet that, like you said, has generated a massive profit in the last twelve months alone. Um, there's no doubt that you know the owners, well, which which are well within their right to take a dividend, but there comes a point where you know a, a football club is very very different to to general general businesses, day to day businesses. You know it's part of the community, it's part of it's people's religion. It's people feel very very passionate, very um, very well connected. It's part of their livelihood, it's part of their community, and. I think it didn't think things through properly. I, I think it definitely football in this country, in particular, is really shooting. You know, it's scoring continuous, uh, continuous own goals. Whether it's to do with whether players, this ongoing negotiation about whether or not players take a, uh, a wage reduction, the PFA's involvement, the FA um, now with clubs electing to take govern, government assisted. Um, uh, you know, for, for their employees of the club. I understand if a, if a Bournemouth does it. I understand if a Norwich does it more so. You know, they don't have the, the, the type of revenue that a Liverpool has, like a Chelsea has, an Arsenal, Man United and so forth. You know, we're talking completely different levels. Um, so I can understand it to a degree more. But also, I think with this whole ongoing saga about footballers and whether or not they do take a, a deferral. I mean, I'm not saying that players should necessarily take a wage reduction. What what I think would be the most suitable and 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 the the right thing to do, and it shouldn't even be, in my opinion, a a discussion, is a deferral on on a, on, a, on a certain amount of your wage, because it is there are tough times, and once we come over come past these tough times, the money will be there for clubs to 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 pay their players and to repay their players, and and I don't think it really matters if a player is out of contract in the summer, the player can still. You know, agreement in place that the club continues to pay the player back at a certain day. I, I, I don't see how there's a big issue. One, one, one question is, and, and Wayne Rooney did bring it up about one of his teammates at Derby County, that one of his teammates lives in a council estate with his mum. And that there will be the odd player. And that, I mean, that, that is a championship club. There will be the odd player that can't afford to take a 30% pay reduction because of their financial commitments, whether it's to do with their overall family, whether it's to do with mortgages and so forth. Um, but I, I, I can't see why players wouldn't be up for taking a, a deferral on, on payment. Especially you, you would get the sense, especially at a club like Liverpool and in a city like Liverpool, where, so for example, when we went with Optus Sport to Melwood, the minute that you walked through that gate, everyone that greeted you or that you spoke to uh, at any position at the club, they were all Liverpool fans. Every single one of them. Every single one. The one that, person who checked you in, the person who opened the, opens the gate, you know, that works in the car park the, yep. with the coffees and food. Everyone loves this club. And that was one thing, one sense that I got about the city as well. So I think that's what makes it slightly more frustrating from a Liverpool Liverpool. Liverpool fans' perspective, because some of these other big clubs, like a, 
an Arsenal or a Tottenham or, you know, a Chelsea, you, you get the sense that, yeah, okay, once you walk within the four walls of a football club, you are now ingrained in the culture and the system. So you, by default, you love them or you, you want them to do well. But I got the sense with Liverpool is they genuinely loved that club and just loved being there. So it shocks me that a club that is so important to the community that they've made this decision. It, it does. No, it really does. And, and you know, I think, I think what, you, what they should be doing as well is looking at, you know, what, what Bayern Munich have done, for example, their players. Their players have actually, you know, they've decided to, to help contribute towards the playing staff of, 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 of the club. The, sorry, the, non, the non-playing staff of the club. And, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, that's a tremendous, a tremendous thing to do. You know, it's showing togetherness. It's showing that they're prepared to do whatever it needs to make, to make sure that the staff, the, the heartbeat of the club, are still together. You know, that they are able to keep their jobs. No one's affected in, in, in that department. And I think, you know, clubs over here should be looking at doing the same thing. Players should be looking to defer their wages. Or, and some may even decide that, you know what, I'm happy to donate my wages or part of my wages to help the rest of the employees of this club until such time as we, we are able to get back on our feet again and the club, the football is able to begin again and you know the, the revenue streams are able to come back into the clubs. Halftime drinks here on the Two Sharp Reds. Mark, how are you enjoying your Merlot? Is it taking you back to the original Ashes? You would have been around for that, wouldn't you? Or... Not quite, well, man. The, the, I just the missed after. it. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, was, what was yeah. it, 1882? Yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, I was 1972. So not, not long afterwards, man. <laughs> not long after. Are you a cricket fan, actually? Oh, I do like my cricket, I have to say. Yeah, I do. Um, I do enjoy watching it. I enjoyed playing it when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, I played one full season when I was 14, loved it, absolutely loved it. Played a lot of indoor cricket as well, um, and which was great fun. Uh, played with a lot of my mates, um, and I wish I was able to play it more often. Were you a pace bowler, I would have thought? I, I was a medium pacer, believe it or not. I was yeah. a medium pacer, but I also, I, I dabbled in everything, so I did a bit of wicket-keeping. Um, well, that's actually, that's the obvious choice. Surely that, that would have been well, the natural progression for you. But I loved bowling as well, you know, as a medium pacer, because of my height, I was able to get some real bounce uh, in, 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 you know, from the ball. And, you know, yep. you used to play on those old, uh, on those cricket pitches where you had the, it was like a, a concrete pitch and they put a, a mat over it, um, mm. like, a, like, a, like a woven mat. And I used to be able to get some real good bounce on it and good turn on it. So I used to come in as sort of like third drop bowler or something and generally every game pick up two, three wickets and, and generally pretty key wickets. Um, so I loved, I loved that. And then I would field either in slips or um, you know, close in because of the reflexes and, and the ability to catch. Hey, Mark, let's head back into your phone book, your famous contacts. Uh, Rumour has it that uh, another player might have got back to you. Yeah, there was a couple, mate. So I don't know why you're sounding so surprised. A couple? Yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why you're sounding so surprised, honestly. Um, okay. So who are we hearing from today, Mark? Well, Matty Upson, mate. My uh, teammate uh, from Leicester. I uh, played the last sort of six months. Well, actually, my first six months at Leicester and his last six months together. And uh, Matty, uh, good guy, good defender. He was a great defender in his time. Unfortunately, he suffered a lot because of injuries uh, throughout his career. Uh, but, you know, very clever, read the game really, really well. Um, but like I said, unfortunately, injuries took its toll on him. My favourite Premier League match of all time has to be one that I didn't actually play in, but I remember watching as a, as a young player just starting out in the game. 
and that was in 1996 and it was Liverpool versus Newcastle at Anfield. The game finished 4-3. It was just had every single thing that you'd wish for from a Premier League match with Stan Collymore scoring the the winning goal in the last couple of minutes of injury time after Newcastle had been ahead and it just the match just toed and froed with attacking football tackles it just had absolutely everything and that match really sticks in my mind as as the best Premier League game I've ever seen. So what's happened there, Mark, is that someone else has agreed with you, uh, that that's, uh, you're not wrong, that that could be potentially the best game in the Premier League history. I, I think for, for, for so many people, that game is kind of, it's almost like a watershed moment. It was kind of the moment where the Premier League really came to life. It, it's, I think it really opened up people's eyes around the world. It got people interested. It got people on the edge of their seat. I think people were sucked into this excitement of what an amazing league it is and how dramatic it can be. Obviously, it was at Anfield, and I was, you know, I've been at Anfield, you know, some amazing evenings. I wasn't there on that particular game, but you know, I've been there as a player. I've been there as, as now post career in the media uh, sort of career that I'm in, and. I mean, it's, it's amazing nights. You know, the atmosphere can be incredible. Barcelona last year in the Champions League was insane, you know. Um, and these sort of evenings are amazing. And at Anfield, it's just set the perfect scene. Um, it lived up to everything and exceeded everything. And I think that's why so many people around the world were so, have become so hooked on the Premier League. Particularly as well, I think it's pretty impressive that you know, that's his favourite game and he didn't play in it. You know, I, 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 it doesn't surprise me when a fan would say that that's their favourite game, but to sort of eclipse that and to go, no, 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 that was actually... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I would prefer in a scenario, you know, to re-watch your debut or to watch that game, that's the one that wins. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, the fact that he, you know, you're not a Liverpool fan, he's not a Newcastle fan, you know, he's just a fan of football and loves to see great entertaining football. And uh, I suppose from a defender's nightmare, it's a bit of a nightmare, you know, to... to yep. Uh, oh, sorry, from a defender's point of view, it's a, it's a nightmare because, you know, there's seven goals scored in it. Um, but just from sheer entertainment, on the edge of your seats, end-to-end football... Uh, it, I, there's, there's, there's very few games that come close to it. Well, let's head back to Matty now and find out his least favourite game. Unfortunately, I have to feel this one that I've been involved in. It was the worst for me anyway. Um, it was in 2004 and it was I was playing for Birmingham City and we played away at Middlesbrough at the Riverside Stadium. and It was just a horrible game that is stuck in my memory. We, we lost the match 5-3. Um, which I remember having a huge inquest after the match as to how we can score three goals away from home and, and not win the game or get a point. But I had a personal shocker uh, with a ridiculous mistake for the fifth goal. And every time Middlesbrough scored, there was this crazy song that rang out over the tannoy. And 
I just went to sleep with it in my head that night and it, it, it will never leave me. And it was just probably the worst memory I have of a Premier League fixture. Birmingham City 3, Middlesbrough 5. Now, Mark, you would have played in that game, I'm assuming. Yeah, I did. I was at the Riverside. And and also, Aussie, Aussie uh, soccer legend Stan Lazaridis was in the, the Birmingham yeah. City side as well. So, And I remember the game really well because, I mean, it was a... Again, another game that's like eight goals scored, end-to-end stuff. Uh, was I was very busy in the game, uh, made some made some pretty important saves, and one of them happened to be a big against Big Lazar. There was no way I was letting La- Stan Lazari score against me uh, in that game, and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty amazing day, and, and to, to have won the game five three was obviously in the end very satisfying, and and uh, I actually can't remember Maddie playing in that game, um, but. You know, he says. I think it's the third goal he was talking about, isn't it? That he said that yeah. he, that he was at fault for, and um, I thank him for it. Really, thanks, mate. Yeah, t- t- totally. <laughs> uh, it was interesting that he referred to the the songs sort of bellowing out towards the end, and it was pretty intimidating. Or, or certainly after every time that that you guys scored. Um, what what was sort of at Middlesbrough's peak? What was it? The atmosphere like was it? Was it? I'm um, obviously it's not like an Anfield in terms of a, you know, those sort of big high scoring games. But I, I can imagine when when the Riverside gets rocking, don't come a knocking sort of stuff. Mate, don't worry. Listen, there's been some big scoring games there as well. Don't worry. I mean, we lost one time at home to Arsenal. I think it was five one six one. Um, Arsenal fans all cheered when we scored our goal. Um, at that stage, I think it was already six nil. Um, but then, you know, we, we, we beat Manchester City. My last ever game for Middlesbrough at the Riverside, we beat uh, Manchester City 8-1 at the Riverside. It was Sven-Goran Eriksson's last game in charge. Um, so uh, European nights were insane. Now, listen, it was incredible. The, the nights at the Riverside, uh, back in the day when I first signed for the club, you know, you couldn't get a ticket for love nor money. It's not like it is now. I mean, now I think they're lucky if they get 12,000, 13,000 people going to a game. Uh, back in the day when I was there, you know, before they did, they filled in the corners. There were, I think, capacity was just on thirty thousand. Uh, there was a waiting list of about seven or eight thousand people. So you, you literally, you got given tickets by the by the club, and you, the only way you're going to get extra tickets is if one of your teammates didn't need any, because it was just they were they were literally they were like gold dust, um, and the nights were were insane. Um, European nights, like I said. You know, we, we had two two seasons in a row where we played in Europe. First season got to the quarters, got knocked out by Sporting Lisbon. And then the second year, we, we made it all the way to the final and unfortunately lost to Sevilla in, in the final in Eindhoven. But, I mean, we had in, in the quarterfinals and the semifinal, we had two amazing comebacks. Once against, uh, against Stal Bucharest. Oh, sorry, the first one was against Basel. And then the second game was against, um, in the semifinals, against Stal Bucharest. Um, and the place is just insane. It was literally, you know, it was it was so hard to explain what the atmosphere was like. It was an incredible night. What felt more special for you, European nights there or with Fulham? I suppose there would have been a different feeling for you. The very different atmosphere in terms of, well, feel about it, because, you know, Craven Cottage is this, this old kind of stadium. Everyone's on top of you. The capacity is only 26,000, 27,000. Middlesbrough, 30 to 35 later on, um, a little bit set back, more modern stadium. So different, but equally as noisy, equally, you know, as intimidating. Um, and I remember for both of them as well, you know, was that European teams coming to England to play at home in, in our ground, they found it really difficult because of the crowd, 
because of the pace, the intensity, the pressure you set them under. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't play out. And the Italian teams, Spanish teams, you know, they're all used to, and German teams, they're all used to having a bit more time on the ball, being able to be more tactical, take their time a little bit more. We just suppressed teams. We suffocated teams with both clubs. And uh, I, was, I just saw a highlight just today um, of the game when we played against uh, Basel in the quarterfinals, the second leg. We were down 2-0 from the first leg. Basel scored after about 15 minutes to make it 3-0 in aggregate, 1-0 at home uh, at our grounds. And uh, we came back and won on the night 4-1. Massimo Macaroni scored the winner. And we ended the, ended the game with, get, get this, Mark Faduka up front, Jimmy, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Yukubu, and Massimo Macaroni. So four out-and-out strikers on the, on, on the team. And that's, that's how we ended respect. the game. And we, and, we, and we won the game 4-1 and got through to the semifinals against Al Bucharest. Well, we don't call you Mr. Segway for no reason, Mark. Uh, whether you meant it or not, that's a sensational segue because I wanted to ask you about uh, Dukes. Uh, Mark Viduka overnight came out and made some pretty interesting comments. I'll just um, relay them back to you. So this was chatting about the 2007 Asian Cup. Um, and he said, to quote, I think Lucas Neal came to the Asian Cup at that stage, not in a good state of mind, because of the fact that Graham Arnold had offered him the captaincy because he wasn't sure I was going to the Asian Cup or not. Once I was at the Asian Cup, either Graham Arnold wasn't brave enough to tell me that I wasn't captain anymore, and I felt Lucas Neal was sulking the whole Asian Cup through the preparations for it, through the Asian Cup, and it affected other players. I think Lucas tried to undermine me. His priority was to be captain because of his other activities off the pitch rather than on the pitch. That's my opinion. Now, we haven't heard from Mark Viduka in, in the media for a little while, so uh, was that a surprise to you to, to hear those comments? A little bit. Um, listen, I know Dukes, right? Dukes is very... Dukes doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, he's generally thought it through. And um, it's it's something that he's observed, you know, uh, and, and he, he, you know, he'll stand by it. And, and I remember the Asian Cup, right, in 2007, and it was obviously the, the very next, uh, you know, summer break after the World Cup, which was, was incredible. And he's right. There, there was a lot of, lot of um, uh, uncertainty as to who was going to go there, um, who, who was going to make themselves available, who wasn't available. And, uh, and obviously we weren't sure who the manager was going to be. And then Graham Arnold was appointed manager. And I think, I think that sort of carried on a little bit. You know, Arnie was the assistant manager at the World Cup. There were some players also, and, and I was one of them. You know, you, know, you, you had your disagreements or your, or your dislikings in, the, in, in certain aspects of the way that, uh, that, that players were treated. Certain players were treated at that World Cup. Um, you know, Arnie being part of that coaching staff, some players may have felt that Arnie was potentially, you know, part of that, um, which he was part of the, the coaching network, you know, staff at the time. And then he's taken over as manager. You know, players are saying, well, we're going to our first Asian Cup, big tournament. Is he the right person to take us to this tournament? There's some players that don't want to be there necessarily. And I don't know 100% whether or not that's, you know, that's the case. I mean, Dukes will know better, you know, whether or not Arnie had given the, the captaincy to Lucas um, and then decided to, to give it to, to Dukes once he decided he was available. Whether, whether Arnie spoke to Lucas about it, I don't know. Um, one thing's for certain, in, in my opinion, I don't know, well, for, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, I'm sure that it, Lucas would have gone to speak to Arnie had he have not spoken to him and said, what's going on? Why, why now am I, am I not captain when I, I was going to be? 
Um, so I, I would think that that, was, that would have been the case had, had, if Arnie had not spoken to him. Um, it's a difficult one, you know, and, and I, remember, I remember at the time, no, the, the people weren't happy. There was an undercurrent. There wasn't a great atmosphere. And uh, whether that's because there was so, many, so much uncertainty at the very top um, to then players who wanted to be there, who didn't want to be there, and whether it was an element of, you know what, we've just gone to the World Cup and had an amazing uh, competition and we are going to win this Asian Cup very easily. And I think maybe there was some players, maybe some players did think that. Maybe some players also did think, and I'm sure he's right. I, there, are, there are some players who definitely were more concerned about their commercial side of things. You know, different positions in the team. You know, becoming mainstays in the team and more, more, more uh, concerned about that whole package, their image, their profile, and everything else. And I think, you know, you got to understand, it was a period of time when 2005, our player, our, the, pro, the profiles of all of us went through the roof after 2005 qualifying for the World Cup. Before that, we're always fighting the, the, whole, the whole negativity around football, not being taken as seriously because we, we, by any other codes, by the general public, by the by the mainstream press because we'd never qualified for a World Cup. Yes, we had players playing in Europe and in isolation when individuals were, were talented players, but the rest just never good enough. The Federation was never organised enough and we never qualified for a... Well, we hadn't qualified since 30, you know, since sorry 1974 for a World Cup in 32 years. So to qualify in 2005, everyone's profile went through the roof. Football was starting to become, be taken more seriously by the greater public and the greater media public, uh, the media sector. So naturally, there are going to be more sponsors. Naturally, uh, there are going to be more opportunities financially for, for, for players to grow into those sort of positions. And, and I think it's kind of human nature that players want to be part of that. Um, <clears throat> did it have a negative effect on the squad, on the performance of the team? I think it was part of it. It definitely played a part in that squad in 2007. Do you believe what... Uh, Mark said that he reckons that, that Lucas Neal tried to undermine him because uh, his priority was to become the captain. Did, was that the, the feeling at the time? I, I don't know. I don't know whether that was the case. All I know is that, listen, I, I, I can only suspect that if you've been told you're going to be captain and then the last minute you have that taken away from you and if, and I say this is a big if, if he'd not been told... And he sort of kind of finds it out rather than being pulled aside and saying, listen, I know I told you, you you were going to be captain. However, Dukes, who was the captain at the World Cup, is here now. He's committed. He wants to play his Asian Cup. I'm going to, I've decided to give him back the captaincy, but you're the next captain in line. I, I, I don't know. And, and I think th th there's got to be a sense of disappointment. I, I think that's only logical. I, I, I think I'd be disappointed. Would I undermine... My, my teammate? No. But I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know the circumstances back then. I, I wasn't enough. In, I was there, but I, wasn't, I didn't see all that. And it goes back to when I, you know, I have had discussions with Dukes about post-2006. My, my experiences regarding the goalkeeping position, the way that Gus dealt with the goalkeeping position, the way that, that certain players were treated, and, and even staff members. And I remember talking to Dukes about this. And Dukes is like, I never saw that. I don't know what, what are you talking about. I, I never, I never saw any of that. So 
everyone has a different perspective. Everyone has different experiences. And, and players see what they want to see. Some players are just all they're focused on is themselves. We've heard it from Harry Kuehl. Harry Kuehl said as a player, all I cared about was me. Or like, I didn't care what it was going on around me. All I wanted to make sure was I was doing the right thing. <coughs> all I cared was I was ready. I was going to be at my best, at my, my peak. And everyone else looked after themselves. And, I, and I, there is an element of that. You come into camp, you're in a group. Yes, you, you, you want your teammates to be, you know, you can't win it alone. You need your teammates to be on board. But your first priority is yourself. So back to, to what I'm trying to say is that you see some things, but you don't see everything. And if you're in the middle of it, and Dukes obviously was in the middle of it. Dukes was the captain. He obviously saw things or, or, or felt that he saw things, portrayed it in a certain way that he felt he was undermined. And all you can do is go with that opinion. Um, we, we haven't heard from Lucas, and it'd be interesting to see if Lucas ever does you know, say anything in, in response, um, which I don't think he will, um, to see his side of, of events. Has it surprised you, though, in the sense that this is 13 years ago and we haven't really heard from, from Dukes in such a long time in the media when it comes to the Socceroos? Do you feel like this must be something that's been, you know, playing on his mind for, for a while? Or, you know, is that a surprise in, its sense, in, in, in itself that it's come out 13 years on? Listen, if you know, Dukes has been, Dukes has been in hibernation, mate. He's been, he's been hibernating after finishing playing football. He's disappeared off the sure. face of the earth. He's, um, you know, he's living a different life now and he's finding himself, finding his feet, he's spending time with his family. And, and I've had some, you know, I've had some contact with Dukes over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's someone that he, for a long, long time, he was trying to find the right place for him and his family to grow up, you know, to, 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 to live and, and for their children to grow up. Um, and and that's, been, that's been tough. And, and I think that's, that's, again, that's another... Um, you know that that's a, that's a that's the negative effect of living abroad for so long. You know, marrying, having you know your wife, your partner being from a different country, born and bred in that country. You know, you, you you're torn. You know, it's his obviously it's his heritage, his creation, his wife's from Croatia, born, bred there, everything. She lived in Australia, like you know, really enjoyed it. But ultimately, for whatever reason, they made a family decision to move back to to Croatia, and I think he's he's happier now than he's ever been uh, from from the impression that I've that I've got from him. Um, I am a little bit surprised he's come out now, but he's obviously got to a point where he feels that he's ready to talk about it. It's something that he wants to to uh, to discuss. He wants people to know more of the the real story because I remember the, you know I remember during that World Cup, uh, that so that Asian Cup and post that Asian Cup. There were a lot, a lot of false stories out there. And, and part of the issue was there were, there were also stories that were coming from within the camp and they were being leaked. So there was a certain element of, uh, of being up, you know, people, you know, you had to be really careful. And it was, it was concerning that players were, were going out with Lee and, and speaking to various uh, sections of the media to, to, to give them stories, which was, which was also very concerning. So there were a lot of stories out there that were based on, on people's own games rather than the actual true facts. Mark, how have you enjoyed this bottle of wine? I've really enjoyed it, mate. Very, very nice. Yeah. Um, and you know what? If you, if you read a little bit more, I'll give you a little bit more of a description of now the actual wine itself. Um, it's the All Out showcases Merlot's best qualities. Strong fruit aromas of satsuma plums, 
blueberries and violets are complemented by a background of toasty oak. What do you reckon? Mm. Well, with that in mind, uh, it's it's probably time that we compare this bottle of wine to a player past or present. And this one might surprise you. Uh, this was a guy who, who featured in the Premier League, uh, but featured is probably uh, the right word in this scenario. Uh, I get the sense that this wine and this player, as I touched on, for me in particular, uh, it offers a lot of flavours. There's a little bit of spice along with the, the fruitiness, which is which is really enjoyable. But at the end of the day, for me, it's it's soft. It's a soft it's a soft wine, and it's a soft player. And there was one person that that really jumped out at me. And once once that player gets in your head, it's tough to to kind of get rid of that thought. So for that, I'm going with Angel Di Maria. I thought that he his stint with Man United is exactly this bottle of wine. It is exciting in in parts, but it off it just lacks depth. It lacks strength. You know, it just for me is is just a soft wine that that could be better in lots of other areas. Oh wow! So yeah, I'm I'm going to go a completely different way from you. You know, like because I'm I'm thinking of the velvety texture. So it's got that 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 feel of it. It's got a little bit of um, quality to it. Um, you know, yep. got some got some hints of it. I'm I'm really looking at I'm thinking of the toasty oak oak strong you know it's it's a big you know it's a big tree um, and th- this player had a had a leg like an oak tree trunk and when he put his leg when he put his leg behind a ball it went like it had come off an oak tree um, branch being swung at it um, no nonsense defender. You know, and uh, with elements had a little bit of uh, uh, had a bit of a softer side of him as a personality, but on the football pitch took no prisoners, and with that big trusty oak leg of his, um, could really swing through the ball and score some crackers actually from distance. Did really well in Asia, uh, in Korea, South Korea, played with the national team uh, for a number of years, and did really really well. Was part of the, the squad that played in 2011 Asian Cup in Qatar. And it's uh, none other than Sasha Ozanowski. Wow, there's a name, and I, I, I've got to say, clutching at straws a little bit with the, with the big oak really? uh, trunk, but yeah. but I like it. I really, you know, I appreciate and admire when you go out of the comfort zone a little bit, and we just try things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think this one uh, it sneaks into the category of it working. Okay, thanks, mate. I thought you were going to say it doesn't work. So no, no, no. I just want to let you know that you're teetering on the edge. That's all. <laughs> thanks, but mate. it's good. No, it's good. Uh, that's all the time we've got left here on another episode of the Two Sharp Reds. Please make sure you leave a review because Mark always comes back to me on the Tuesday and Wednesday and goes, "I don't know if people like me." Did they? You know, it's just getting frustrating. So I think it'd be easier, Mark, if people just left a review just to let us know what you think, so then you don't have to bother me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, the one review we did get um, on 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 uh, Twitter wasn't it saying that he didn't like me very much, but really liked you, and we mentioned him. Um, yeah. So none of those ones. So like, if you want to do yeah. those, just send those to Ollie. Let Ollie know yeah. how much you dislike me. That's fine. Just send me the nice ones because you only want good vibes on Twitter and Instagram and all social platforms, not these negative ones. Ollie doesn't mind them. You know, I'm a bit sensitive. No. You know, I'm a sensitive uh, new age guy. I like it. The Sensitive Podcast. I'm a big fan of that, Mark. Thank you for your time here. Another episode of the Two Sharp Reds. And until next time, make sure you're self-isolating, keeping yourself busy and active, and above all else, make sure you're decantering. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, mate. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.